The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Greetings, I'm Rob Cox, the global editor of Reuters Breaking Views in New York. I recently had an opportunity to sit down with Scott Galloway to talk about The Four. That's the title of Scott's recent book about the hidden DNA of Amazon, Facebook, Apple, and Google. The timing was, of course, fortuitous. Facebook, and to a lesser extent Google, is scrambling to explain how it will keep its platform from being hijacked by anti-democratic forces, as appears happened during last year's election with Russia. And Amazon is about to receive a deluge of offers from cities across North America begging the online retailing giant to locate its second headquarters in their midst. Scott, who presciently predicted Amazon would buy Whole Foods earlier this year, has two prognostications. First, Amazon will take all of the proposals it receives from cities, bundle them up, and use them to negotiate the best possible deal it can from New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio. Because... After all, where else would a billionaire like Jeff Bezos want to spend his time than Manhattan? Second, EU regulators will slap one of the big U.S. tech firms with a record $10 billion-plus fine sometime in the next 24 months. And we give a listen to my chat with Scott Galloway. So, Scott, the last time I saw you, you were an activist shareholder. It's probably quite a few years ago. And yeah. Since then, you've put together this book, The Four, The Hidden DNA of Amazon, Apple, Facebook, and Google, Everyone's talking about it. You've uh, you've kind of diagnosed some of the problems that these big behemoths, really monopolies or, or incipient mm-hmm. monopolies, um, are, are are have challenged to, to the world. Where do you think it goes from here? I mean, every day there's a new congressional committee trying sure. to look into either Facebook's role with the Russia connection, sure. Amazon and antitrust. I mean, how do you think it's going to play out? So the worm has definitely turned. Uh, a year ago, we were trying the the biggest discussion around the four, if you will, was whose CEO is more Jesus-like. <laughs> How do you get your kid a job there? And all of a sudden, everything they do now, we're angry at. So the worm has definitely turned. Now the question is, where does you know, quote unquote, stuff get real? Where where do we really start seeing the conflict? And I think like many of the major conflicts of the 20th century, a major conflict is brewing between governments and big tech. And I believe the war, if you will, on big tech is going to break out in Europe. Yeah. So we've already seen, uh, certainly, uh, the EU on the on antitrust grounds. They've yep. gone after Google. They've had the big, rendered the biggest fine, I think, in history. Yep. That's just the start. And Facebook and Amazon and going after Apple for taxes. I would argue Marguerite Vestager is the only regulator in the world right now whose testicles have descended and is going after these guys. Yeah, she certainly has. And it makes sense because here in the U.S., it's just... You know, it's undeniable. We register tremendous upside and benefit from these companies. They are, they're a source of national pride. There isn't a nation that wouldn't take all the problems, the privacy concerns, the job destruction, the tax avoidance in exchange for them moving their headquarters to those countries. So we do register a lot of benefit. There are a lot of downsides that are worth discussing. We ha- are having that discussion right now. But in Europe, they register all of the downside with a fraction of the upside. There aren't that many hospital wings or university buildings named after Google or Facebook millionaires in Europe. They aren't recruiting as many people from the University of Cologne as they are from Stanford. Hmm. So this has stiffened their backbone, and I believe you're going to see the first $10 billion-plus fine come out of the EU in the next 24 months. There's a uh, non-zero probability also you're going to see a European nation go China on one of these companies. And what I mean by that is they'll just ban their business because they look at China, who basically stole the IP yeah, of these and companies. Kept Google out, kept Facebook kept out. Kept them out and, and backed a local entrepreneur. And then you look at Europe, who's welcomed these companies in. 
And it's not entirely clear which was the right decision. Right. Well, I mean, so you're suggesting to some degree that there's capture in, in the sense it's it's not necessarily regulatory capture in the, in the sort of classic sense, but it's a we're all captured by the, the success of these amazing companies, um, which, you know, have a combined market cap of whatever it is, two trillion dollars. Yep. Is that at some point, though, that that capture is going to have to break? I mean, if you see this happening in Europe, if you start to see some of the social or other issues related to as we've seen with Facebook, say, in, you know, Sheryl Sandberg being hauled up in front of Congress. I mean, do you think, what, what will break that? My sense is the tipping point was the weaponization of these platforms by uh, Russia. Yeah. I think that is really a big deal. And also, crises turn into full-blown kind of career-ending injuries, not because of the actual crisis itself, but because of how the company handles it. And there's only three rules in a crisis. The top guy or gal has to acknowledge the problem, be the person leading the response, and most importantly, you have to overcorrect. You have to clear all the shelves nationwide of all the Tylenol, even though it was an isolated <laughs> incident. And what we've seen from Facebook is the mother of all poorly handled crisis management in that it's a series of half measures. And when Cheryl went on this past weekend on, I think it was Axios, and said, we're a media company. I'm sorry, we're not a media company. Right, right. Boy, have they blown it. The only response, and let me fast forward to what they will eventually say because they'll be forced to, is this is unacceptable, and we're going to stop it no matter the cost. I mean, because they are a media company, they, 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 but they don't want to be, because a media company has attendant responsibilities that they don't want to accept. That's exactly right. They're spending a billion dollars on content. They have deals with sports leagues to create content. They've hired Campbell Brown to head, head up journalism. 50% of Americans get their news from Facebook, and they run ads against this content at 90-plus points gro of gross margin. Boom, you're a media company. They have openly embraced the margins, the celebrity, and the influence of a media company and seem to be allergic to the responsibilities. Totally unacceptable. Yeah, they've abrogated any of those sort of the issues that, that regards dissemination of information and news. I mean, that's, that's, that's clear. But they've taken all the economics. Yeah, they, look, it, it, their big word they keep using is platform, right? And the, the analogy I would use is imagine, there's, imagine McDonald's, we found out 80% of the beef they were serving was fake, and it was giving us encephalitis, and we were making bad, bad decisions. And we got angry at McDonald's. Mm. McDonald's defense was, look, we're not a fast food restaurant. We're a fast food platform, and we can't be responsible for the quality <laughs> of the beef. The, the, the business model of having an enormous pool at a country club and not having any lifeguards is a better business model, but it has real risks involved. And mm -hmm. what we see here is there are no lifeguards, and they're going to have to employ what Reuters, what the New York Times, what, 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 what Viacom employed. It's very expensive and introduces friction, and it's called human discretion. Mm -hmm. And they've conveniently said, well, we don't want to be the arbiters of truth. Well, you sure as hell can try. I mean, yeah. the, we're not talking about enormous safeguards here. The, the, the disputed ads, the controversial ads from the GRU, were paid for with a credit card in rubles. That right. is literally and figuratively a red flag. Right. So when they talk about, they start using words of, well, it would be impossible. And quite frankly, old media has been co-opted in, into this narrative of saying, well, they're different. It would be impossible to screen all this content. That's total BS. We're not talking about the realm of the possible. They can do this. We're talking about the realm of the profitable. And effectively what they're saying is, this, it's not that this is impossible. It's that it, this would be impossible to do without impacting our cash flow and our profitability. And you have on one side the subterfuge of our democracy or the safeguard of our mm. de our democratic elections, and on the other you have the profitability of Facebook and Google. And I know which side I'm on. Well, I mean, what's the risk in to their business? There's got to be an existential business risk if you don't do this and you and you basically invite some sort of um, external regulation. Isn't that also a, a, a as big a threat as a small dent to your cash flow? 
It is a risk. Uh, I think they're handling it incorrectly. Realistically, though, it's not that big a risk in the U.S. because despite the tweets from the president, which made for good theater, the current administration doesn't have the collective IQ around technology nor the will to go after companies as successful as these. And if the I won't challenge that assertion. Look, if the administration was to go after big tech with their, their skills, their lobbyists, their PR consultants, uh, this would be McGregor versus Mayweather mm-hmm. part two, and that is the redhead would get the crap kicked out of them. They are Washington is outgunned by these guys. Whereas in Europe, Marguerite Vestager, she doesn't have a lot of downside here. She's going to go after these guys. It's interesting your your prediction that they they might see a ten billion dollar uh, fine in the in Europe, you, and that you might see a country sort of pull a China. I guess one of the questions, just circling back to that, is. Who nobody really quite has the scale of an America or a China. This is one of the things that's benefited mm-hmm. both the American tech giants and the likes of you know Alibaba, Tencent, Baidu. Um, I mean, is there is it even realistic that you could see something like that happen in Europe? Sure, taken as a whole, the EU is a lar- the largest economy in the world. So, yeah, that, but that's a that's that's a scale problem, language problem. I mean, it's yeah, tough and, get, and they don't tend to get along. But the, it is it, Marguerite Vestager is the EU Commissioner on Competitiveness, mm-hmm. and she she. I think she is emerging as someone who collectively has support uh, across geographic boundaries. And then you're going to see, I believe, potentially a populist movement out of, and I don't know which country, that's going to say, you know what, Google is not good for us, or Amazon has not been good. We've, we've, we've been watching this movie around mm-hmm. the world, and we've decided it's not a, we know how it ends, and it doesn't, it's not a good film, and we're just not going to allow them in here. It's funny, in your book, you anthropomorphize, I guess that's the word, you know, the, these, these companies, I think you call the four. Google is the brain, mm-hmm. Facebook is the heart, Amazon is the stomach, um, and Apple is the, are the, is the genitals. Yep. Is, you know, um, I just, just thinking, we've, we've talked a bit about Facebook, let's switch a bit to Google, sure. the brain. So, you know, is, so there's an instance you just talk about how potentially in Europe you might have a movement to create, I don't know, the anti-Google or, it's, or the, uh, the other version of Google, though. But, I mean, it's just so embedded. I mean, you look at the, the dominance in Europe. Sure. is even higher, I think, than it is 90 here. 90-plus points yeah. of market share. So our, our species has a need for a super being. Our brain, our competitive advantage of a species is our brain, which is robust enough to ask really difficult, thoughtful questions, but not robust enough to answer them. So mm-hmm. we fill that void with a super being that supposedly sees everything. We pray to it. We send up information or queries. Will my kid be all right? Symptoms and treatment of croup. Google is a modern yeah. man's god. Fills the void as countries become wealthier and more educated. Church attendance goes down at the same time our modern-day anxieties go up. Google is filling that void. If you were to have a list of every, of every Google query that you've posed in that, in that dialogue box, yeah. you would soon recognize you trust Google more than any priest, rabbi, scholar, mentor, coach. The stuff you put in there is striking in terms of what, uh, what it's it really personal. it's really it's, what it indicates about you it's not only your vulnerabilities and everything sure not, not only what ailments you have but what ailments you're scared of getting you know, it's just think about everything you're considering you research it and you ask Google for an answer on whether that's a good idea or, or not so Google is a modern man's God one in six queries presented to Google have never been asked before in the history of humankind mm-hmm. what what authority? Or what party has the so much authority that one in six questions posed to that entity have never been asked before? It, it is our God. And over time, our species has decided that one super being is not enough. Is, is Google taking that responsibility as seriously as it can? My impression when I hear Eric Schmidt talk is that he takes it more and Google takes it more uh, seriously than Facebook. I think Facebook suffers from what I'd call a gross idolatry of youth, and that is 
we worship at the altar of youth and innovators as opposed to kindness and character. And the average age of the Cleveland Cavaliers players and the San Jose Sharks hockey players is 29. The average age of a Facebook employee is 28. Mm. And I think Mark Zuckerberg and the management there did not grow up with the historical context of the importance of the fourth estate. And if you look at the early moves around beacon and advertising and targeting, I just don't think the CEO there has a context for how scary it is to attach some of these activities to identities and why people are so freaked out by it. Whereas when you hear Eric Schmidt speak, they, they consistently try to remind us that they when they use the data, they aggregate it and anonymize it, and they're trying to, to put in place pretty serious safeguards such that think about the You want to talk about social chaos, a hack that gets in and puts your face and your name above every Google search query for anyone to search. They can pull up your name. Mm-hmm. And they get your face, and they get every search you've ever done since Google's been around. Well, You're talking, it would be so revealing of, 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 of all of us. It would not only be revealing, it would be social chaos. Yeah. Marriage is something ending, out of Black Mirror. Right? Lawsuits. Right. You, you would just see everything everywhere. The courts would be backed up for years. Of course, that's part of the whole argument in Europe has been about the ability to erase your, your history, right? I mean, that's and, – and even if you're a plumber who has crappy uh, reviews – from your customers? Well, rightfully so. They're sensitive about lists. Mm. And they have a much, they have a, a very, you know, they, for good reason, are very worried about, even I remember in the 90s advising catalog companies, the rules for catalogers in Europe, which is different. And I worry that, especially at Facebook, the youth of the management team there, I don't think they have this right. And Google is actually more powerful and would be scarier. But the body language you get from them is that they are even themselves a little freaked out by what they have. Yeah. No, I think they recognize the responsibility. That's why I asked the question, are they doing as much as they – I mean, we, there's a lot more that everyone can do, yeah. certainly. But are they taking it seriously enough and doing enough? Um, of course, they're the ones who got the big fine, and that was yeah. partly because of the, the way that they you did the searches. They, they changed them in Europe. Well, look, th- th- these four, at the end of the day, are proving a truism, and that is power corrupts. And when you have 90-plus points of share in a sector search that is now a bigger market by dollar volume mm. than the entire advertising market of every nation except the U.S., Oof. It's not even that they're bad people. It's not that they're not trying to do the right thing. It's just they're just too powerful. From a traditional antitrust standards, they're probably the most vulnerable, but I don't think they'll be the first ones that will be broken up. So what about Amazon? Where do you stand on, on Amazon's dominance? Which is certainly its share of retail is relatively small yeah, in the U.S. That's right. But they, everywhere they go, they seem to disrupt and destroy. Yeah, you're exactly right. From a traditional antitrust concern standpoint, they're the least vulnerable because in every market, I think their number one, their most dominant market is cloud where they have about 30% market mm. share. And then if you go across retail, media, all the other things, they're kind of single digits. Right. So you think, well, it doesn't really, antitrust really isn't a concern here. But there's some very uncomfortable things about Amazon. One, we have a company that's now, I think, the fourth most valuable company in the world that got to $500 billion in value and has effectively paid no corporate income tax. So since the Great Recession, Walmart has paid $64 billion in corporate income tax. Amazon has paid one4 And they've done it legally because they reinvest everything and they offer the consumer a great value proposition, giving the consumer they 100 take it cents in the dollar. The, the pre-tax line. They basically say we're going to invest everything back yeah. in the company. It's a brilliant business strategy as long as the stock keeps bidding up. But what happens when the most successful companies in the world don't pay any taxes? How do we pay our firefighters, our social workers, our teachers? And the answer is it's fairly obvious. The less successful companies have to pay more than their fair share. You know, Alexa, is that a good thing, right? You talk about job destruction. We've always have innovative companies arbitraging a lot of medium-paying jobs 
for more high-paying jobs. That's fine. That's their right. It's part of the evolutionary progress of an economy. We've just never seen anyone this good at it. And now we have a company that can perform what I would refer to as Jedi mind tricks. In between the time they announce the acquisition of Whole Foods and when it closed, Kroger, the largest pure play, play grocer in America, lost a third of its value. And this is because Amazon acquired a company one-eleventh the size of Kroger. I believe that Amazon right now could take the value of any publicly traded consumer company down 20 to 30 percent within 30 days just with press releases. It's funny. We just we looked at uh, sort of just we used a very crude measure of enterprise value to sales to see who out there in the market has is sort of on a level with Amazon um, and in, in sort of an idea that this might be the areas that haven't yet been disrupted. So you see like Home Depot, for instance, mm -hmm. uh, certain retailers that have withstood, you could argue, the Amazon onslaught. But again, all it would take is potentially Amazon saying, we're going there. We have evidence of it everywhere. Last Friday, there's there's rumors that they might be going to the drugstore business. CVS right. and Walgreens down 4 and 5% respectively in one day. And then it even went further back, the food chain, into drug manufacturers who also took a hit that day. Right. So Amazon can look at somebody, wish them ill, and start... And it gives start, them a stink eye and the stock falls. That's exactly right. What, what, you know, they've got their... their HQ2, their, their yep. second headquarters that they're, they've, they've got every city in America scrambling, every town. I've talked to the mayors yeah. of Hartford, Detroit, yeah. uh, Bridgeport. They're all like trying to find these, these ways in. You know, they'll be sifting through those uh, RFPs or those proposals yeah. over the next couple of weeks. I mean, is this an opportunity for them to perhaps rectify this image of, you know, of, of them being sort of tax scoff laws and maybe giving back in some way by taking, I don't know, a Detroit or a Hartford or one of these inner cities that's been, uh, that's been in real trouble, the, making the, that their headquarters? That's a great idea, reinvigorating the heartland of America, going into Detroit. I mean, they'd really add real social value. I think the whole thing is a giant head fake and a ruse to mature. I think they've already decided what city they want to be in, and they're going through this entire process for two reasons. One, to continue to occupy the front page of every business section of every magazine and newspaper in America as we all obsess over it yeah. and as you and I are talking about it here and now. And two, to mature the most irrational, stupid term sheet from a municipality that falls in love with the concept of detonating a prosperity bomb. I think they're going to take that term sheet. I think they're going to go to Bill de Blasio and say, it's New York's to lose and we're going to do something stupid. I, I, if you got the tail number of Jeff Bezos' jet and just saw where he spends the most time, that's where their second headquarters will go. We, so we like New York? Uh, I believe it's going to be yeah. New York uh, or, or something very So basically he there. uses all these term sheets and all these proposals, taxes, benefits, projects, buildings, all that kind of stuff, zoning, everything, and says, here you go. We'd like it to New York, but can you please d match everybody? So I'm an entrepreneur, and, and when the moons have lined up and I have a company that I can sell and I have multiple bidders, you spread your net far and wide to mature the best terms, and you go to the company you want to acquire, right. and you say, match this. And that's what's going on here in my view. The CEO picks the city. Bottom line, I mean, it sounds, we forget these people are humans. Jeff Bezos runs this company. Mm -hmm. He's going to decide where he wants to spend more time. That, my headquarters at L2, I told my real estate agent, it could be anywhere in the world as long as I could walk there from faculty housing at NYU where I live. Right. And I think he's going to pick it. I think it's going to be New York, transportation hub, three world-class engineering universities now. <clears throat> And most importantly, the number two criteria behind where the CEO wants to spend more time is where they can retain and attract the best young talent. Every 23-year-old coming out of Carnegie Mellon or MIT says, you know, I wouldn't mind living in New York for two or three right. years. Maybe San Francisco. And every city is a distant third behind those yeah. two.
That's exactly right. I mean, there's you know Boston attracted GE on the same pretty much on the for the same for the same reasons actually. It wasn't because the tax rate was lower in Massachusetts versus Connecticut. It's so where do the where do you want the talented people and where do you find research facilities and engineers academic and institution people? and that's. Yeah, that's that's interesting. All right, that's an interesting prediction. Then, what about Apple? Your your you know the the final of the four, um, the sex, the genitals in yeah. your book. How do they deal with this this backlash against big tech? And and what where will it strike them? I think Apple's the least vulnerable because right now Apple is personified by two things: Tim Cook, who I believe is the most likable man in business, first openly <laughs> gay CEO of a Fortune five hundred. I think it's impossible not to like Tim Cook, and also we're seeing Siri get. The crap kicked out of it by Alexa in full view. So, so you see that there is com- there are competitive dynamics. Oh yeah, but so, if you look at Apple, unfortunately, right now Apple sort of gave away voice. Siri owned it. I mean, literally owned it. No, they and were I, the first in. They were they they really had it. And you're right, Alexa is. And is now, seventy percent share of home voice is Amazon Alexa, and the new battlefront isn't the, isn't going to be the telephone. The, probably the new real mother of all battlefields is going to be the home. And the weapon is going to be voice, and Amazon has already jetted out to a huge lead. Apple will sustain incredible profitability, m- look more like a mature company because it has the operating margin somewhere between a Ferrari and Hermes because it is the new signal that you have good genes and are more and a more attractive mate. The genius business move was deciding we don't want to be the best house in the worst neighborhood, computer hardware. We want to be the best house in the best neighborhood, and that's luxury. Samsung likely has a better phone at this point. But it, it doesn't do- have the cachet of the new thousand dollar whatever phone. That, this is yeah, the new, you know, y- you and I wear these ridiculously expensive timepieces called a watch that we don't. I want. don't wear a watch. You don't wear a watch. No. You're more you're more self actualized than I am, because we want to send a signal to potential mate that if you mate with me, your kids are more likely to survive than if I mate with someone wearing a swatch. And we're willing to pay irrational margins. You know, the most irrational organ in the mar- in the body is our reproductive organs, and Apple is going straight after them. <laughs> So one of the things uh, you've talked about in the book, I think was in relation to Apple, is the idea that they should get into education. Yeah. So elaborate on that a little bit. They all talk a big game about connecting the world, curing death, putting men on Mars. I think the biggest opportunity from a societal standpoint and also a civic stand, uh, a shareholder standpoint is to go into the business of education. If you look at the, – the, you could effectively decide what industries are most ripe for disu- disruption by looking at prices increases relative to inflation. And if the increases are much greater than inflation with no underlying increase in productivity, it's ripe to be disrupted. We saw it in cable television, and all of a sudden, boom, Google yep. and Apple and Amazon come in and literally kick the crap out of that $59 billion bleeding corpus of television advertising. And it's going on right now, the disruption. The industry that's raises prices faster than healthcare or cable television is education. I teach 300 kids on a Monday night, comes out to about $150,000 a night in tuition, mostly registered in debt on young people. Yeah. That's a, that's, I've, become, I've gone from the lubricant of upward mobility as an educator to part of the problem. And I believe part that of the friction, as you part of the friction, part of the debt, part of the problem. And we can still justify it because the kids come in, they make X, they leave making 1.6X. But some of these second-tier schools are charging the same amount and just basically just putting debt on families and households. So why not Apple, which is this great brand, or Google, any of these guys, to say, uh, look, we, you trust us. I mean, Google's a great instant, uh, yeah, example could do of that. It as, well. as you say, one out of six questions that have asked for the first time have been asked at Google search. Google has all the answers. Why couldn't they then create a... You know, sort of something that has some element element of humanity, of humans involvement, but at the same level is is capturing all the benefits from technology to deliver a product that costs instead of seventy thousand dollars a year, 
$10,000 a year. I think you're exactly 5, right, Rob. I think they could start the largest tuition for universities, Google probably in tech, Apple in the humanities or the arts or design or, or liberal arts. And you would have, you, you could create tremendous shareholder value because you'd want to flip the b business model. Corporate profits are at an all-time high. Student debt's at an all-time high. So what you could do is give kids free tuition and then charge companies to recruit there. So every year I get calls from almost all of the companies we've referenced who said, send us names and we'll recruit them. The war for talent, and that is over-educated pedigreed credentialed talent, has never been more vicious. Yeah. These companies would pay a lot of money for a more streamlined way of finding the right talent. I think Google would pay $50,000 a graduate and maybe ask these kids to, to pay some money back or give a percentage of their earnings. It, they, so how do they make a lot of money? Credentialing, you know, being in the business, we, we're not in the business of educating at NYU and either is UCLA or, or uh, MIT. We're in the business of credentialing. And that is when we give them a credential, we say, we've already done their credit checks. We've done, they don't have a criminal background. We know they can do Excel. We credential them. The business of credentialing globally is probably the largest $10 trillion or $5 trillion plus business that has 80, 90 points of gross margin in it. There's a ton of shareholder value to be created here. Tenure has resulted in a massively um, uh, inefficient yeah. education system. It's just, it, we have literally stuck our chin out. And I think these guys have the fists of stone to detonate a competitive bomb in every university square. Well, it's not going to be, NY, I mean, not to pick on NYU, it's not going to be NYU, Harvard, or any, or you know, the, the the University of Connecticut that decides to cannibalize itself. Very, I mean, that it, there's very rare instances of that happening. The, Harvard yeah. could, but they won't. Harvard right. could. Harvard said publicly, we could double the size of our incoming freshman class and not sacrifice inequality. And then the question becomes, well, why not? And I'm in these faculty mm. meetings, Rob. And we get this sick pleasure out of how hard it is to get into our school. Every year we announce, well, our, our acceptance rate is now 15%. Oh, wait, now it's 12%. I, I believe this is the equivalent of a homeless shelter bragging about how many people it turns away every night. That's not what we're here right. for. Right. We're here to right. credential as many people as possible. We're here to give as many people. I mean, you're, you're, you're younger than me, but most people of kind of our generation, we all look back and think, I couldn't have got into the school I got into. And if I hadn't have gotten into the school I've gotten into my life would likely be not as nice. Mm -hmm. So the reality is the, the world is getting less nice for people because they don't have the money or they don't have access to the same level of upward lubricant and credentialing that we have. These companies could make an enormous difference and add a lot of shareholder value. Right, and they'd probably gain a lot of public approval, legislative, congressional approval. Everybody would start to say, oh, well, these guys aren't so bad. Look what they're doing. Starts their hat white. Yeah. I don't, All right. I, almost no chance is going to happen. Scott, <laughs> thank you very much. It's thank you, lightning, Rob. And uh, be in touch soon. Look forward to it. That was fun. I'm going to hold Scott to his prediction about Amazon's headquarters moving to New York and the next megafine from the EU. But given his track record on these matters and the very persuasive arguments he marshaled, I can't say I'd be willing to bet against him. Anyway, that's all for this week's episode of The Exchange. This podcast was produced by Ben Kellerman, Ryan Warner, and Freddie Joyner. If you haven't already, please sign up on iTunes and anywhere else you satisfy your audio cravings for The Exchange, The Views Room, and other Reuters podcasts. You can also check us out at BreakingViews.com and on Twitter, at BreakingViews and at Rob1Cox. Thanks for tuning in, and adios. Adios.